After 17 months, an American army was fighting under its own flag. General John J. Blackjack Pershing, American Expeditionary Force, San Miel, September 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 50, 5-0, Meuse-Argonne, the Battle of Saint-Miel. Quick admin note, big shout out to listener Reynald, the latest patron of the BFWWP on Patreon. Thank you so much. Also, big shout out to my very good friend, Michiel from Fontaine, France. Michiel very graciously recorded himself correctly pronouncing the names of several French villages for me, and for that, I'm very much in his debt. Thank you, sir. So, any mistakes here are entirely mine. Okay, on to the battle. Technically, the clearing of the Saint-Mail salient in September of 1918 can be treated as its own short campaign, but as General John J. Blackjack Pershing agreed to conduct this attack and then immediately reroute his soldiers up to the Meuse-Argonne, we're going to talk about it as part of the new battle here on the BFWWP. Saint-Mail will thus receive its own episode. And that way, we get to cover another battle fought by the AEF in World War I. Saint-Miel is a town on the River Meuse, about 20 to 25 miles southeast of Verdun. At the beginning of the Great War, it had a population of around 25,000, I'm told. During the four years of German occupation, the population dropped dramatically and never recovered Today, the Saint-Miel commune, meaning outlying villages are included, has a population of just over 5,000. The town has a history dating back to the 700s, where settling grew around a Benedictine monastery. If you're home and can do so, put your map applications on Saint-Miel and focus on the area to its northeast. This will be our battle area. In the military world, the word salient is used to describe a bulge or some portion of a front line that juts out into enemy territory. The Western Front during World War I featured two very famous salients, the one around Ypres in Belgian Flanders and the one around Verdun. There was a third prominent salient to the southeast of Verdun named the Saint-Miel salient because Saint-Miel sat at the tip of the bulge into then-French-held lines. At the beginning of the war, in August and September 1914, part of the German army had attacked out of its fortified stronghold around the city of Metz, which had been annexed into the German Empire after the Franco-Prussian War. The goal of the German 5th and 6th armies was to smash the French 3rd Army at Verdun and take that fortified area. In early September, Verdun 
then serving as the crucial hinge of the shaky Allied line as the Battle of the Marne raged further north, was under siege, and as the German 6th Army attempted to outflank the bastion from the southeast by attacking from the Moselle Heights across the Wuvre Plain. As we know from the Verdun podcast episodes, the German 5th Army at this time was trying to batter its way into Verdun itself. Two forts sitting on the Meuse Heights south of Verdun, Troyon and Genicourt, were attacked repeatedly throughout the first half of September. The forts were pounded to rubble, but the French defenders held out. The Germans attacked en masse on the 20th with four army corps, spreading out across the Wouvre Plain again. By the 22nd, they were on a line running Combre, Vignol, Tiocourt, and the next day, units advanced all the way into Seychelles to the south. The German onslaught continued, with men in Feldgrau attacking up the Meuse Heights from Vigneul and on the 25th, entering the town of Saint-Miel. On the 26th, the Germans crossed the river Meuse at Saint-Miel. French defenses in this sector were extremely thin and in danger of cracking. It was crisis time for the French army here, as it was in so many other spots on the battlefront. It was at this point that the French 16th Corps wheeled up from Nancy and plowed into the enemy at apremont la forêt and at Chavancourt, which lay across the Meuse from Saint-Miel. Fighting raged. The Germans were thrown back to where they had to pull back into Saint-Miel, but they managed to hold Chavancourt. By the end of September, the front line ran on a line Combre, Chavancourt, Apremont, and north of Seychelles. Further back, two hinges had been formed at Les Eparges and Pont-a-Mousson. The Saint-Miel salient was here, and here it would stay, with minimal changes in the trench lines despite brutal French attacks in early 1915, and on and on until four long years later. The French called the Saint-Miel salient the hernia, which it surely was to them. At its base, the salient was 25 miles wide, and from its tip, it was 16 miles deep. With the salient firmly jutting painfully into the French front, the French had all sorts of problems in the area. The Paris-Nancy rail lines were disrupted. The Nancy-Toul rail lines were cut, making supply of this sector of the Western Front difficult. The salient posed a constant threat to the land west of the River Meuse, as it could be a springboard for future attacks there. The salient also provided excellent protection for Metz and for the Briey iron basin behind that city. It would be hard to have blood and iron for Germany if the French recaptured Briey and its iron fields. South of Saint-Miel, the Germans had seized two prominent heights at Lumont and Montsec, which dominated the area for miles around. All in all, the Germans had done pretty well for themselves. As we discussed last episode, after some contentious meetings between them, Allied Supreme Commander Marshal Ferdinand Foch 
and American Expeditionary Force Commander General John J. Blackjack Pershing agreed to eliminate the Saint-Mail salient before focusing on the Meuse-Argonne front. Getting rid of the hernia at Saint-Mail would help secure the eastern flank of the Verdun-Meuse area from any possible German counterstrokes when the Americans launched themselves into the Argonne. While a further push on Metz had been originally planned by the AEF staff at Chaumont, the revised plan, agreed to by Foch and Pershing, saw just the elimination of the bulge now. The attack, D-Day, a term used by the French and now picked up by the Americans, was set for the 12th of September, 1918. The Americans and French began moving troops into the area, doing their best to hide the tens of thousands of bodies and the thousands of guns flooding into the area around the salient. Soldiers marched only at night in order to hide their presence. During the day, they hid in any and all available dugouts, buildings, and shelters that shielded them from the eyes of German pilots. Deception was also used General Pershing tricked some of his own officers into believing an attack to the south near the Belfort Gap would be made. The ensuing radio and telephone traffic sounded excited and legitimate to the Germans, because it was. The Germans believed it, although they thought the idea of an attack near Belfort to be crazy. But then again, these were the new and inexperienced Americans who were unpredictable and reckless amateurs. By the 11th of September, 1918, the AEF First Army had some 550,000 American doughboys positioned in the frontline trenches or in reserve nearby. First Army also had 110,000 French poilus and colonial tirailleurs in the front lines or in reserves. Behind them were 3,000 artillery pieces stocked with 3.3 million shells. Nearly 1,500 planes piloted by Americans, Frenchmen, British, Italians, and even Portuguese pilots, hey now, were in the skies, working to dominate the air above the salient. 400 tanks, mostly light Renault FT-17s, but a few heavy Schneiders and Chant Saint-Chamond's as well, were nearby and being prepared to lead the main attack. 144 of the tank crews were American. This massive concentration of military might faced some 75,000 exhausted and beleaguered Germans and Austro-Hungarians of Army Detachment C under Lieutenant General Georg Fuchs. Being in a salient has its advantages. From the inside, you have three potential directions from which you can break out and attack. However, it also has its disadvantages. Being on the inside of a salient means you could potentially be attacked from three different sides. This was exactly what Blackjack Pershing had planned. On the southern side of the salient, from Pont-à-Mousson to Zivray et Marvoisin, two U.S. corps 
with seven divisions between them, would be attacking in a generally north-northwest direction towards Vigneulles in the middle of the salient. Two more of the massive American infantry divisions were in reserve. From Port-Saucet to Limy, the first corps under Lieutenant General Hunter Liggett would be the main attack as the 82nd All-American, 90th Texas-Oklahoma Tough Hombres, 5th Red Diamond, and 2nd Warrior Divisions from east to west made themselves ready to bash through the German lines. Hunter Liggett's a name to remember, by the way. Supporting the 1st Corps was the 4th Corps, from Limy to Zivray et Mavoisin, with its 89th Middle West, 42nd Rainbow, and 1st Big Red 1 Divisions, also from east to west. These units would assist in breaking through the German lines and then face west to cut off any retreating enemy formations. At the tip of the salient, centered in an arc around Saint-Miel itself, was the French 2nd Colonial Corps. Here, the 39th and 26th Division d'Infanterie, along with the 2nd Division des Cavaliers à Pied, dismounted cavalry, would launch attacks and raids meant to fix the enemy in place while he was cut off from retreat. On the western face of the salient, with its line from Mouilly to Audiomont, the U.S. 5th Corps would be punching south-southeast towards Vigneulles as well. With the 1st Corps coming from the other direction, 5th Corps' men of the U.S. 26th Yankee Division, French 15th Division d'Infanterie Coloniale, and the U.S. 4th Ivy Division, from south to north, would be moving to seal off the salient from their side. Pershing's plan was a double pincer to cut the salient right off. Further attacks planned for Metz were shelved. Of the three AEF Army Corps assigned for the attack, two of those were unproven in combat. Of the nine divisions within those three corps, four of them were going into combat for the very first time. The Germans had spent years fortifying the salient into two deep defense zones. The first, the Wilhelm Line, was eight kilometers thick and merged into a supporting defense system known as the Schroeder Line. The Schroeder Line was positioned in a formidable arc centered around Vigneul within the salient. At the base of the salient was the second defense line, the Michel Line, which contained portions of the Hagen, Volker, and Kriemhilde trench systems, all part of the vaunted Hindenburg Line. The defenses were no laughing matter, as was typically the case with the Germans. Frank Sibley, a Boston Globe reporter who attached himself to the 26th Yankee Division, told of the salient in the Western sector, quote, Nowhere else in our experience did we see so much wire as there was in this sector. Elsewhere there had been belts, anywhere up to 30 yards across. Here, belt followed belt, and there were literally miles of wire entanglements. At the no-man's-land area, the woods were, of course, blown to bits. Gaunt skeleton tree trunks stood here and there, 
but the position had remained as it was for so long that thick underbrush had grown up around the trees and travel was almost impossible, even for unburdened, free-going foot passengers in peace. It was awful country. End quote. In a curious development unknown to the Entente powers, the German army had already decided to withdraw from the salient. The massive and irreplaceable losses in personnel since March meant that every man that could be spared needed to be spared. The Somme salient had been deemed a sector that needed to be reduced in order to shorten the front line and make more men available. The order had gone out on the 9th of September. Troops and equipment were to be withdrawn to the Michel line and the guns started moving out first. Anything with military value was to be destroyed. The Germans were already facing a coordinated air campaign where crossroads and known supply dumps in the salient and as far north as the Meuse-Argonne were already being attacked by bombers. The air arm, under the command of American Colonel Billy Mitchell, was working to soften up the enemy and disrupt his ability to move reserves and supplies into the coming battle space. Battle tactics and doctrine were rapidly morphing, and what we see happening at Saint-Miel is one of the first combined arms campaigns complete with air support. Once darkness fell on the 11th of September, soldiers began marching towards their jump-off trenches, having waited until the last moment in order to maintain operation security. Artillery pieces also began to move to their positions, as men and materiel in their thousands began moving in the inky black of the night Nature, in true army style, brought in the last and unnecessary piece of the puzzle. A heavy rain began to fall, soaking the soldiers and guns. At 0100 hours, 1 a.m., on the 12th of September, even as boots, wheels, and tank tracks continued to squish and slide their way through the now muddy roads and fields, 3,000 guns went off at the same moment. Remember the days of 1916 when the Germans had bombarded the Verdun salient with 1,200 guns and the British had rumbled the world with 1,500 guns on the Somme? Those days looked positively amateurish and quaint now. 3,000 guns fired around the salient, all of them aimed at the German side. Corporal Earl Searcy of the 311th Infantry, 78th Division, remembered the opening of the bombardment as, quote, It seemed as if the whole top of the world had blown off. The horizon in front of us and to either side leaped forward in a mad blaze of jumping flashes. Crashes for an instant were distinguishable, but they settled quickly into a roar, much after the fashion of an airplane motor, which at slackened speed, misses, then, as the propeller gains momentum, emits a steady din. We gazed, every man of us, stunned. For five minutes, no attempt was made to pass orders. Officers and men watched the spectacle in awe. End quote. Sergeant William Brown of the 9th Infantry, 
2nd Division, said of the ensuing deluge of shells, We couldn't hear ourselves think on our side, and no living thing could last long on the other. The bombardment lasted about four hours, and it is claimed that more shells were fired in this battle than any previous one the Allied powers were in. It sounded to me like the end of the world. One of the boys cupped his hands and yelled full strength in my ear, Say, boy, some Fourth of July we're having. His voice sounded like a whisper to me. What he said was the truth, believe me. The guns pounded away at the German lines as rain fell and tanks rumbled towards their positions. Planes buzzed through the darkness as bombers headed deep within enemy lines to bomb and create havoc. Over the next few hours, the doughboys and poilus, ready and waiting for the order, simply sat or lay in the wet fields and muddy trenches as the night sky flashed with endless lightning. Corporal Chris Emmett of the 90th Division was one of those doughboys. Water began to accumulate in our trench, he recounted. We arose to our feet, leaning against the muddy banks. Our hands were slimy with the oozy clay. Our feet now felt the chill of the penetrating cold. I sat down in the slush again, no longer being able to hold the weight of my body on my feet. The mud was cold and the water seeped through my dirt-encrusted uniform. When the French-made 75mm guns began to drop shells in a slow-moving curtain just ahead of the Allied trenches, it was time to go over the top. It was 5 o'clock in the morning now, on the morning of the 12th of September, 1918, and the sky was steadily committing to dawn. The American First Army was on the attack. In their respective zones, doughboys rose from their waterlogged trenches and moved towards the enemy. Ahead of them, in the 42nd Rainbow Division sector, the two-man Renault FD-17 tanks, quote, dipped and bobbed like cautious old ladies, end quote, ahead of the infantrymen. The Willem zone, that first defense zone of the Germans, was easily breached. Doughboys rushing into shell-shattered enemy trenches found that they were empty of corpses. The enemy had pulled out before the barrage had begun. In other places, German artillery began to come alive and launch its deadly counter-bombardment just as Americans were moving through the first-line positions. In others still, some German machine gun nests and fire teams put out devastating streams of fire, sending men to the ground screaming for cover or screaming from horrific wounds. These nests would be overrun quickly, and the American men kept moving. Many of the Germans encountered were those who were surrendering, and within a short time, the attacking battalions were being whittled down, not by casualties, but by guards needed to herd German POWs back to U.S. lines. The Americans broke through the German lines. The artillery bombardment had certainly been effective, but of equal effect was the fact that the Germans had decided to pull out of the salient already. With lightly manned trench lines, the Germans couldn't expect to hold the line for long. Within hours, the Wilhelm Zone's third line was breached, and doughboys were swarming remaining German artillery crews and blasting them with Springfields, Shoshos, and hand grenades. 
Up above, the leaden skies dissipated the possibility of the Allies attacking en masse like Billy Mitchell had hoped. Pilots, either by themselves or in small groups, took to the air despite the rain and strong winds. They contented themselves with strafing any German units they could find on the ground or spotting for the artillery. On the southern side of the salient, 4th Corps overall tore into the enemy line and advanced steadily until they reached a wood halfway between the villages of Seychelles and Nonsar, where the enemy gave them hell. The 42nd Rainbow Division, so-called because its men came from various regions of the country and were thus a rainbow-like melting pot of Americans, was the division with the most to do. They crashed into the German 10th and 77th Divisions opposite them. These were battered divisions, and the only one in the saint mail salient that German General Fuchs considered trustworthy and capable of doing its job was the 10th. Units of the 42nd Division, the 166th Infantry Regiment, and the 165th Infantry Regiment, the latter formerly known as New York's Fighting 69th, slid through the endless lines of rusty barbed wire and small groups of enemy. Within hours, these regiments, part of the 83rd Brigade, 42nd Division, had pushed forward eight kilometers and seized the villages of Essie et Mazaret and Pan. French civilians left in these villages were soon sharing whatever food they had with their American liberators in thanks. They had thought the day would never come. Father Francis Duffy, chaplain of the 165th Infantry, said of that morning, quote, It was like a moving picture battle. Tanks were crawling up along the muddy roads, and cocky-colored figures could be seen moving about in ones and twos and fours along the edges of the woods and across the grassy plains. Toward the rear were ever-larger groups of prisoners in their blue-gray uniforms, carrying their personal belongings, and in many cases their own wounded, as well as ours, on improvised litters. Overhead, the shells were still screaming from our heavy artillery with a good deal of answering fire from the German batteries, which caused most of our losses." End quote. On the right half of the 42nd Division's frontage, the doughboys of Brigadier General Douglas MacArthur's 84th Infantry Brigade had a harder time as they fully faced the Germans of that 10th Division. And yes, it's that MacArthur that we're talking about here. Machine gun teams and terrific shelling from Minenwerfer mortars, scythes, and slashed the young American troops as they rushed forward with bayonets fixed. Using 37mm Puto guns, picture a 90-pound miniature field gun, and British-made Stokes mortars, the Doughboys fixed these enemy nests in place while rifle teams outflanked them and then shot them down. The Renault FT-17 tanks of the U.S. 327th Tank Battalion were as bogged down as the doughboys they were meant to support. After clearing the Bois de Sonar, MacArthur's men pushed forward and steadily cleared the German defensive lines ahead of them. On the 42nd Division's left, the 1st Division surged through the enemy lines, 
On the big red one's left were the heights that dominated the region, Montsec and its sister hill, Lubmont. Montsec, where today a stunning American memorial stands, is a dominating butte that gives its owner commanding views of the Wouvre Plain for miles in nearly every direction. In the past months, American units stationed in the plain below had said that a soldier couldn't change his shirt without asking the Germans on Montsec for permission. Any movement resulted in a hailstorm of high-explosive shrapnel and gas. Now, Montsec and Loupemont were blinded by a smokescreen, and the doughboys of the 1st Division could smash through the German defenses on the low ground. The fighting in the Garde de Reserve, that wood between Seychelles and Nonsar, was fierce and cost the division 600 men, but it was cleared, and by noon, the day's objectives had been met. The Germans were melting away quickly. On the 4th Corps' right flank, the 89th Middle West Division launched themselves into the Bois de Mortemer directly ahead of them with two full infantry brigades online. Crossing the open ground to the dreaded and blasted wood caused heavy casualties as German machine gun teams in the trees poured out murderous fire. But once inside, the flood of American boys overwhelmed the defenders. By 8 a.m., the Bois de Mortemer was in U.S. hands. Further south, the 1st Division took the village of Nonsar and pushed into the Bois de Nonsar woods and the village of Les Marchands-Wevres. American tank crews and tank battalions, commanded by one Colonel George Patton, did not have the day they had hoped to have. The American crewed and French-made Renault two-man FT-17 baby tanks got bogged down in the slimy ground or were quickly outrun by the attacking infantry. Once they did get going, many started to run out of gas and had to wait until more fuel was dragged up by other tanks. All of this led to Colonel Patton rushing to the front on foot to see if he couldn't get things going by force of will alone. He met Brigadier General Douglas MacArthur in the middle of the battlefield at the village of Essi. There the two men, in a rather blatant manhood measuring contest, stood in the open and had a conversation on the developing battle as bullets buzzed by them and shells impacted close by. By midday, the divisions of the 4th Corps had reached every objective planned for the day. Corps Commander Major General Joseph Dickman asked for and got permission to continue pushing and start taking the second day's objectives. On 4th Corps' right, the 1st Corps under Major General Hunter Liggett aimed itself in a general northwest direction and launched its attack. The goal was the village of Tiocor, the second largest town in the salient after Saint-Miel, and a stop on the rail line. On the Corps' left flank, the veteran 2nd Division simply shoved its way through the enemy line and made for Tiocor, taking it by noon as enemy units collapsed from the bombardment and hundreds of Germans surrendered. To the right of the 2nd, the Red Diamonds of the 5th Division kept the pace with the Doughboys to their left. They too quickly cut through enemy lines. 
they did face some resistance, as recorded by a divisional historian. Quote, The tactics of one enemy gun crew were described thus. Machine gun fire until close approach of our infantry. Threw grenades when our troops advanced to 30 yards. Called Kamarad at 20 yards. Attached to AEF for rations at zero yards. End quote. To the left of the 5th Division, on 1st Corps' right flank, the 90th Division came up against some determined German fighters. The tough hombres doughboys plunged into deep woods ahead of them and discovered that the Germans had long since built this place for defense. In some places, they had put up iron gratings between trees that pushed Americans into kill zones for the machine gunners. Fighting was fierce. A large shell had made a direct hit upon four boys. Corporal Chris Emmett of the 359th Infantry Regiment later recalled, All were dead. Limbs were mangled. Bodies were torn. It was a sight revolting beyond description. Of one of my comrades, I could find only small fragments of his poor body. None were larger than my hand. With the exception, there lay his head, jerked completely from his body. The skin from his neck was stripped back to the crown of his skull. Bare white bones of his head, smeared over with a pinkish thin blood not yet congealed, glistened in the light. The powder-blackened face of a young Jewish boy stared immobile into eternity. Nearby was his hand, which had been popped off at the arm just back of the wrist. On the bleeding stub was a wristwatch. And I looked at the others, their spent, distorted bodies, with muscles still twitching. Corporal Emmett went on. A sergeant came along. He was rather old for a soldier in the ranks. He was florid of face, and his neatly trimmed red mustache showed in contrast to his fast graying hair. I called him to assist me with a wounded lieutenant. Indiscreetly, he stood up. With a grunt, he sat down, gurgling. I'm shot. Through the chest. A gas shell popped above us, and we stuck our heads into our masks. Looking at the freshly wounded sergeant, who was now sitting with his head in his hands, I realized he was unable to put on his mask and would surely die without it. I grabbed it. To my horror, I found the pipe leading to the inhalation tank punctured by the bullet which had entered his chest. Frantically, I repaired the pipe and fitted it to his face. When I last saw him, he was leaning over, breathing laboriously. A frothy, pinkish spume blubbered from his nose and mouth. Clearly, these are scenes someone would never forget. The 90th Division kept pushing and eventually cleared the woods. By the end of the day, both the 90th and the 5th Divisions were up against the first line of the Michel Zone. This was the base of the salient itself. To the right, men of the 82nd Division used strong raids to confuse the enemy into thinking an attack might come from their direction too. At the tip of the salient, the bombardment went on until 6 a.m., when the poilus of the French 2nd Colonial Corps went over the top and attacked at Montsec, Loupemont, and around Saint-Miel itself. The village of Apremont-la-Forêt, scene of severe fighting over the last four years, was liberated that day. On the Corps' right, 
the French 39th Division d'Infanterie, supported the U.S. 1st Division by fixing the Germans in place on Montsec and Loupemont, and it would be French troops who would take those hills. In the French Corps' center, the French 26th DI attacked at Saint-Miel, running into fierce machine gun fire that forced its men down for cover. Boileau's here made it into the outskirts of the city, where they were stopped. The Germans, though, were dragged into local attacks that kept them locked into their front lines. On the 2nd Colonial Corps' left, the 2nd Division de Cavalerie à pied, the dismounted cav guys, acted as a flank screen for Americans of the 26th Yankee Division on their own left. On the western face of the salient, the Allied bombardment went on until 0800. Having bombarded the enemy here for a full seven hours, the American and French divisions of the U.S. 5th Corps here went up and at the enemy. The difference here, as opposed to the southern face of the salient, where the 1st and 4th Corps were punching through the enemy's defenses, was that these troops were running headlong into thick forests and hilly country for which the Meuse region is known. The ground had also been thoroughly worked over during the artillery preparation, and waterlogged fields of overlapping shell holes added to the tough ground conditions. From the 5th Corps' left flank, a brigade of the U.S. 4th Division began a supporting attack, while the French 15th Division d'Infanterie Coloniale, between the U.S. 4th and 26th, advanced to protect the 26th Division's flank. The 26th Yankee Division and the Corps pushed forward some two miles, and the Germans opposite them started crumbling. Lieutenant Elliot Carter of the 101st Infantry, 26th Yankee Division, stated, Precisely at 8, I scrambled up the top of the trench, crying out to my platoon, Over the top and give them hell! What induced me to use these melodramatic words? I don't know. But in any event, the platoon understood my meaning and followed me out through paths in the barbed wire into no man's land. Meeting no resistance, we advanced about a hundred yards to the rear portion of their first line of defense. I suddenly saw a German soldier coming out of a dugout with an automatic rifle at the ready. Seeing that he was covered, he showed no disposition to fight, and he went back into his dugout to leave his rifle. He then came up the steps with his hands up. Not wishing to use one of my men to guide the prisoner, I took the chance of leading him back a little way through the trenches, and then forcibly making signs to him to go in the direction of our lines. Judging from subsequent events, I think that many of the enemy were quite willing to give up, and they did not need to be heavily guarded. One of these subsequent events was when the greater part of an entire Austro-Hungarian infantry division up and surrendered to the oncoming doughboys. Still, the advance was slow, and by midday, Pershing was calling for the Yankee division to pick up the pace. The New Englanders of the 26th found themselves locked in a tough fight at the village of Domartin-la-Montagne. On their left, the French 15th DIC was battling it out with the Germans just past the village of Saint-Rémy. By the afternoon, the Yankee division would have conquered the village and all of its 
other objectives for the day. The French 15th Colonial, though, would not. AEF Commander General John J. Blackjack Pershing thought the pace of the 5th Corps, in particular that of the 26th Division, was too slow. He made his views known to the Corps Commander, General George Cameron, that he wanted Cameron's men to push and close the salient before the Germans trapped inside could get out. Pershing's disappointment with the 26th Division came from two angles. First, the 26th was a National Guard unit, and there was the professional jealousy between the regular army and the National Guard, and that the latter weren't made of the same stuff as the former. On top of being a National Guard division, its commander was one General Clarence Edwards, an outspoken and boundary-pushing officer who was generally liked by his men, but not so much by other officers of the AEF command staff. So Pershing was all over the 26th. General Cameron ordered General Edwards to push forward, and a night attack followed. The 51st Brigade of the 26th Yankee Division marched through the night down the Grand Tranchée de Calonne, which is not actually a trench, but a road. They were aimed at the village of Vigneulles, a village in the center of the salient that was a junction point of several roads. From the 4th Corps side, the 1st Division raced through the night with the same mission. At 5th Corps, General Cameron actually played on the whole regular army versus National Guard rivalry and dared Edwards to have his men beat the doughboys of the 1st U.S. Division. The Yankees of the 26th got there first. By 0200 on the 13th of September, they were in Aton Châtel, which sits on high ground overlooking Vigneulles, a mere kilometer away. Seven hours later, men of the 1st Division reported large groups of Germans moving through Vigneulles, and artillery fire was requested. Luckily, other men of the 1st Division reported in as well to state they had made contact with units of the 26th Yankee Division. The large groups of Germans were prisoners being marched into captivity. At 9.30 in the morning, a message came to 4th Corps headquarters regarding Vigneulles. Objective reached, held by 26th Division. With that, the salient was sealed off. From the tip of the salient, French troops had broken through at Saint-Miel and were now cleaning up from that direction. The remaining Germans inside this pocket now had nowhere to go, although many fought determinedly to try and give others time to escape the pincers. Many Germans had gotten out, but that was now over. 16,000 Germans became prisoners within the first two days of the offensive. German General Fuchs now worked to prevent a greater disaster. The salient was cut away, but the wound now had to be cauterized by stiffening the defense of the Michel line. Throughout the 13th, the men of the AEF 1st Army mopped up the newly liberated villages and fields and pushed patrols up to what would become the new front line. By the 14th, General Fuchs' soldiers were steadfastly carrying out his orders. When doughboy patrols came up to the Michel line defenses, they were mown down without mercy with artillery 
and machine gun fire. The Germans had been sobered by being smashed at Saint Miel, and they were now recovered and facing the grim challenge of continuous combat against American forces. By the end of the 14th, the new front line ran from Vendier to fresnes en Wouvre and on to Audiomont, roughly. By the beginning of the 14th of September, the Battle of Saint-Miel was effectively over. Aggressive patrolling by American units would continue until the 16th, after which the new front line settled into the old trench warfare pattern of local attacks and artillery duels. Pershing had an itch to keep pushing on toward Metz since he had the enemy on the run, but his own staff very forcefully pushed back on the frankly dangerously silly idea, and he dropped it. Divisions that had been in reserve were already on the march up to the Meuse-Argonne. The Saint-Miel offensive had been a success. The AEF First Army had suffered 7,000 casualties, but had inflicted nearly 20,000 on the enemy, the bulk of that number being prisoners. 443 German guns had been captured. 150 square miles of French territory had been liberated. Metz and the Brie ironfields were now under threat. The AEF had no further plans to attack, but the Germans couldn't be sure of that. The Germans had also just been exposed as being weak in a part of their defensive line. Where else might they be weak? The Americans had also shown that they were indeed capable of operating on this modern battlefield independently. American efforts now turned to the left bank of the Verdun sector and the adjacent Argonne Forest. They had less than two weeks to get themselves ready to launch what would become the United States' largest military operation ever. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or holler at me on the Twitter at at ww1podcast. You can also go through the Battles of the First World War podcast page on Facebook. And after two years of general neglect, I have begun using my website again, firstworldwarpodcast.com. You can communicate with me there as well. And hopefully it won't be weeks before I log in and take a look. I am getting a little bit better on that. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.